Welcome back to Rockford Reading Daily. We are continuing to read The Souls of Black Folk by W.E.B. Du Bois. We are on chapter four, entitled Of the Meaning of Progress. And it has a poem here that is at the beginning, but it's in a different language I can't read, so we're just going to skip that. <clears throat> Once upon a time, I taught school in the hills of Tennessee, where the broad, dark veil of the Mississippi begins to roll and crumple to greet the Alleghenies. Alleghenies. I was a Fisk student then, and all Fisk men thought that Tennessee, beyond the veil, was theirs alone. And in vacation time, they sallied forth in lusty bands to meet the county school commissioners. Young and happy, I too went, and I shall not soon forget that summer 17 years ago. First, there was a Teachers' Institute at the county seat, and their distinguished guest of the superintendent taught the teachers fractions and spelling and other mysteries, white teachers in the morning, Negroes at night. A picnic now and then, and a supper, and the rough world was softened by laughter and song. I remember how, but I wander. There came a day when all the teachers left the institute and began the hunt for schools. I learned from hearsay, for my mother was mortally afraid of firearms, that the hunting of ducks and bears and men is wonderfully interesting. But I am sure that the man who has never hunted a country school has something to learn of the pleasures of the chase. I see now the white, hot roads lazily rise and fall and wind before me under the burning July sun. I feel the deep weariness of heart and limb is ten eight, six-mile stretch relentlessly ahead. I feel my heart sink heavily as I hear again and again, quote, got a teacher? Yes, end quote. So I walked on and on. Horses were too expensive until I had wandered beyond railways, beyond stage lines, to a land of, quote, varmints, end quote, and rattlesnakes, where the coming of a stranger was an event and men lived and died in the shadow of one blue hill. Sprinkled over hill and dale lay cabins and farmhouses shut out from the world by the forest and the Roanoke Hills toward the east. There I found at last the little school. Josie told me of it. She was a thin, homely girl of 20 with a dark brown face and thick, hard hair. I had crossed the stream at Watertown and rested under the great willows. Then I had gone to the little cabin in the lot where Josie was resting on her way to town. The gaunt farmer made me welcome, and Josie, hearing my errand, told me anxiously that they wanted a school over the hill, that but, that but once since the war had a teacher been there, that she herself longed to learn, and thus she ran on, talking fast and loud, with much earnestness and energy. Next morning, I crossed the tall round hill, lingered to look at the blue and yellow mountains stretching toward the Carolinas, then plunged into the wood and came out at Josie's home. It was a dull frame cottage with four rooms, perched just below the brow of the hill amid peach trees. The father was a quiet, simple soul, calmly ignorant. The father was a quiet, simple soul, calmly ignorant, with no touch of vulgarity. The mother was different, strong, bustling, and energetic, with a quick, restless tongue and an ambition to live, quote, like folks. End quote. There was a crowd of children. Two boys had gone away. There remained two growing girls, a shy midget of eight, John, 
tall, awkward, and 18. Jim, younger, quicker, and better looking. And two babies of indefinite age. Then there was Josie herself. She seemed to be the center of the family. Always busy at service or at home or berry picking. A little nervous and inclined to scold, like her mother, yet faithful too, like her father. She had about her a certain fineness, the shadow of an unconscious moral heroism that would willingly give all life to make life broader, deeper, and fuller for her and hers. I saw much of this family afterwards and grew to love them for their honest efforts to be decent and comfortable and for their knowledge of their own ignorance. There was with them no affection. The mother would scold the father for being so, quote, easy, end quote. Josie would roundly berate the boys for carelessness and all knew that it was a hard thing to dig a living out of a rocky side hill. I secured the school. I remember the day I rode horseback out to the commissioner's house with the pleasant young white fellow who wanted the white school. The road ran down the bed of a stream. The sun laughed and the water jingled and we rode on. Quote, come in, end quote, said the commissioner. Quote, come in, have a seat. Yes, that certificate will do. Stay to dinner. What do you want, a month? End quote. Quote, oh, end quote, thought I. Quote, this is lucky, end quote. But even then fell the awful shadow of the veil, for they ate first, then I, alone. The schoolhouse was a log hut. Excuse me. The schoolhouse was a log hut where Colonel Wheeler used to shelter his corn. It sat in a lot behind a rail fence and thorn bushes near the sweetest of springs. There was an entrance where a door once was, and within, a massive rickety fireplace. Great chinks between the logs served as windows. Furniture was scarce. A pale blackboard crouched in a corner. My desk was made of three boards, reinforced at critical points, and my chair, borrowed from the landlady, had to be returned every night. Seats for the children, these puzzled me much. I was haunted by a New England vision of neat little desks and chairs, but, alas, the reality was rough plank benches without backs and at times without legs. They had the one virtue of making naps dangerous, possibly fatal, for the floor was not to be trusted. It was a hot morning late in July when the school opened. I trembled when I heard the patter of little feet down the dusty road and saw the growing row of dark, silent faces and bright, eager eyes facing me. First came Josie and her brothers and sisters. The longing to know, to be a student in the great school at Nashville, hovered like a star above this child woman amid her work and worry, and she studied doggedly. There were the Dowells from their farm over toward Alexandria, Fanny, with her smooth black face and wondering eyes, Martha, brown and dull, the pretty girl wife of a brother, and the younger brood. There were the Burks, two brown and yellow lads, and a tiny haughty-eyed girl. Fat Reuben's little chubby girl came, with golden face and old gold hair, faithful and solemn. Thenie was on hand early, a jolly, ugly, good-hearted girl who slyly dipped snuff and looked after her little bow-legged brother. When her mother could spare her, Tildy came, a midnight beauty with starry eyes and tapering limbs, and her brother, correspondingly homely. And then the big boys, the hulking Lawrences, the lazy Neils, unfathered sons of mother and daughter, Hickman with the stoop in his shoulders, and the rest. There they sat, nearly 30 of them, 
on the rough benches, their faces shading from a pale cream to a deep brown, the little feet bare and swigging, the eyes full of expectation, with here and there a twinkle of mischief, and the hands grasping Webster's blue back spelling book. I love my school, and the fine faith the children had in the wisdom of their teacher was truly marvelous. We read and spelled together, wrote a little, picked flowers, sang, and listened to stories of the world beyond the hill. At times the school would dwindle away, and I would start out. I would visit Mun Eddings, who lived in two very dirty rooms, and ask why little Lou Jean, whose flaming face seemed ever ablaze with the dark red hair uncombed, was absent all last week, or why I missed so often the in the inimitable excuse me, or why I missed so often the inimitable rags of Mac and Ed. Then the father, who worked Colonel Willis' farm on shares, would tell me how the crops needed the boys. And the thin, slovenly mother, whose face was pretty when washed, assured me that Laguine must mind the baby. Quote, but we'll start them again next week, end quote. When the Lawrences stopped, I knew that the doubts of the old folks about book learning had conquered again. And so, toiling up the hill and getting as far into the cabin as possible, I put Cicero, quote, pro Achilla po poeta, end quote, into the simplest English with local applications and usually convinced them for a week or so. Um, here, I'm going to keep reading. I'm going to keep reading. It's not really, he's sort of telling us, a, giving us a, I mean, there's some things I could reflect on, but let's, let's keep reading. On Friday nights, I often went home with some of the children, sometimes to Doc Burke's farm. He was a great, loud, thin, black, ever working and trying to buy the 75 acres of Hill and Dale where he lived. But people said that he would surely fail and the, quote, white folks would get it all, end quote. His wife was a magnificent Amazon with saffron face and shining hair, corseted and barefooted, and the children were strong and beautiful. They lived in a one-and-a-half-room cabin in the hollow of the farm near the spring. The front room was full of great fat white beds, scrupulously neat, and there were bad chromos on the walls and a tired center table. In the tiny back kitchen, I was often invited to, quote, take out and help, end quote, myself the fried chicken and wheat biscuit, quote, meat, end quote, and corn pone, string beans and berries. At first, I used to be a little alarmed at the approach of bedtime in one lone bedroom, but embarrassment was very deftly avoided. First, all the children nodded and slept and were stowed away in one great pile of goose feathers. Next, the mother and father discreetly slipped away to the kitchen while I went to bed. Then, blowing out the dim light, they retired in the dark. In the morning, all were up and away before I thought of awaking. Across the road, where Fat Reuben lived, they all went outdoors while the teacher retired, because they did not boast the luxury of a kitchen. I like to stay with the Dowells, for they have four rooms and plenty of good country fare. Uncle Bird had a small, rough farm, all woods and hills, miles from the big road. But he was full of tales. He preached now and then, and with his children, berries, horses, and wheat, he was happy and prosperous. Often to keep the peace, I must go where life was less lovely. For instance, Tildy's mother was incorrigibly dirty. Reuben's larder was limited seriously, and herds of untamed insects wandered over the Eddings' beds. Best of all, I loved to go to Josie's and sit on the porch, eating peaches, while the mother bustled and talked. How Josie had brought the sewing machine, 
how Josie worked at service in winter, but that $4 a month was, quote, mighty little, end quote, wages. How Josie longed to go away to school, but that it, quote, looked like, end quote, they could never get far enough ahead to let her. How the crops failed and the well was yet finished. And finally, how, quote, mean, end quote, some of the white folks were. Okay. This, what stands out to me reading this is the experiences that I've heard other black people from not this exact time period, but in the, around the 1950s and 1960s. I read an autobiography by, I've read, I've read Dr. Martin Luther King Jr.'s autobiography and I also read autobiography by, uh, man, March with Dr. King. I don't know why I can't think of his name right now. Okay, Andrew Young was the name that I was trying to think of. Andrew Young wrote a book called An Easy Burden. And both Dr. King and Andrew Young went to school to become uh, preachers. And then they were assigned to churches. And when they were assigned to churches and they would go to these communities, a lot of the experiences that they would have would be similar to what we're reading about W.E.B. Du Bois is having. Uh, they would talk about how rough life was for the black people who lived in those areas. They would talk about how they got to know the people in those communities, sometimes even living with them or, or, or staying with them as they got on their feet. And so that's what I'm reminded of as I read this. And I'm also reminded that even though W.E.B. Du Bois is talking about uh, at least 50 years in between his experience and Dr. King and Andrew Young's experience, the similarities that still existed in the conditions that black people were living in. Also, what stands out to me is the the how often how many how often and how many black people in this time period and even when you get to get closer and closer to where we're at in the 21st century right now have had to decide whether it was more beneficial to have a essentially a long-term plan or have a, a a long game and to invest in education and invest in learning and invest in in reading and writing as opposed to needing their children to be contributors on uh, to the the economics of the family or to the finances of the family at an immediate time period and how many black people did not have the availability or the options to go to school and to learn and to graduate and to go to college because their families weren't able to make ends meet. And the reason that their families weren't able to make ends meet is because of the, uh, the fact that they weren't being given livable wages because they weren't in, uh, adequate living conditions. And so even as we read about the the living conditions that some of these black people were in, it reminds me of us reading about high risers and how bad the living conditions were for black people in the housing projects. And that was almost a hundred years after what we're reading in the souls of black folk. And, all, but the desire, that's what stands out in this too, is the desire that these children and that these kids uh, had to learn to read, to learn to write, to gain some type of knowledge and gain some type of education. And the desire that W.E.B. Du Bois had to instill that education to them. I think all of those things 
are stand out and all of those things are very important. For two summers, I lived in this little world. It was dull and humdrum. The girls looked at the hill in wistful longing and the boys fretted and haunted Alexandria. Alexandria was, quote, town, end quote, a straggling, lazy village of houses, churches, and shops, and an aristocracy, excuse me, and an, arist an aristocracy of times, dicks, and captains. Cuddled on the hill to the north was the village of the colored folks, who lived in three or four room unpainted cottages, some neat and homelike, and some dirty. The dwellings were scattered rather aimlessly, but they centered about the twin temples of the hamlet, the Methodist and the hard-shell Baptist churches. These, in turn, leaned gingerly on a sad-colored schoolhouse. Hither my little world wended its crooked way on Sunday to meet other worlds and gossip and wonder and make the weekly sacrifice with frenzied priests at the altar of the, quote, old-time religion, end quote. Then the soft melody and mighty cadences of Negro song fluttered and thundered. I have called my tiny community a world, and so was isolation made it. And yet there was among us but a half-awakened common consciousness sprung from common joy and grief at burial, birth, or wedding. From a common hardship and poverty, poor land and low wages, and, above all, from the sight of the veil that hung between us and opportunity. All this caused us to think some thoughts together. But these, when ripe for speech, were spoken in various languages. Those whose eyes 25 and more years before had seen, quote, the glory of the coming of the Lord, end quote, saw in every present hindrance or help a dark fatalism bound to bring all things right in his own good time. The mass of those to whom slavery was a dim recollection of childhood found the world a puzzling thing. It asked little of them, and they answered with little and yet it ridiculed their offering. Such a paradox they could not understand, and therefore sank into listless indifference, or shiftlessness, or reckless bravado. There were, however, some, such as Josie, Jim, and Ben, to whom war, hell, and slavery were but childhood tales, whose young appetites had been whetted to an edge by school and story and half-awakened thought. Ill could they be content, born without and beyond the world, and their weak wings beat against their barriers, barriers of caste, of youth, of life. At last, in dangerous moments, against everything that opposed even a whim. The ten years that follow youth, the years when the first realization comes that life is leading somewhere, these were the years that passed after I left my little school. When they were passed, I came by chance once more to the walls of Fisk University, to the halls of the Chapel of Melody. As I lingered there in the joy and pain of meeting old school friends, there swept over me a sudden longing to pass again beyond the Blue Hill and to see the homes and the school of other days and to learn how life had gone with my school children. And I went. Josie was dead, and the gray-haired mother said simply, quote, We've had a heap of trouble since you've been away, end quote. I had feared for Jim. With the cultured parentage and a social caste to uphold him, he might have made a venturesome merchant or a West Point cadet. But here he was, but here he was angry with life and reckless. And when Farmer Durham charged him with stealing wheat, 
The old man had to ride fast to escape the stones which the furious fool hurled after him. They told Jim to run away, but he would not run, and the constable came that afternoon. It grieved Josie, and great awkward John walked nine miles every day to see his little brother through the bars of Lebanon jail. At last, the two came back together in the dark night. The mother cooked supper, and Josie emptied her purse, and the boy stole away. Josie grew thin and silent, yet worked the more. The hill became steep for the quiet old father, and with the boys away, there was little to do in the valley. Josie helped them to sell the old farm, and they moved nearer town. Brother Dennis, the carpenter, built a new house with six rooms. Josie toiled a year in Nashville and brought back $90 to furnish the house and to change it into a home. When the spring came and the birds twittered and the stream ran proud and full, little sister Lizzie, bold and thoughtless, flushed with the passions of youth, bestowed herself on the tempter and brought home a nameless child. Josie shivered and worked on, with the vision of school days all fled, with the face wan and tired, worked until, on a summer's day, someone married another. Then Josie crept to her mother like a hurt child and slept and sleeps. I paused to scent the breeze as I entered the valley. The Lawrences have gone, father and son forever, and the other son lazily digs in the earth to live. A new young widow, excuse me, a new young widow rents out their cabin to fat Reuben. Reuben is a Baptist preacher now, but I fear as lazy as ever, though his cabin has three rooms. And little Ella has grown into a bouncing woman and is plowing corn on the hot hillside. There are babies aplenty and one half-witted girl. Across the valley is a house I did not know before, and there I found, rocking one baby and expecting another, one of my schoolgirls, a daughter of Uncle Bird Dowell. She looked somewhat worried with her new duties, but soon bristled into pride over her neat cabin and the tale of her thrifty husband, the horse and cow, and the farm that they were planning to buy. My log schoolhouse was gone. In its place stood progress. And progress, I understand, is necessarily ugly. The crazy foundation stones still mark the former side of my poor little cabin, and not far away, on six weary boulders, porched the jaunty board house, perhaps 20 by 30 feet, with three windows and a door that locked. Some of the window glass was broken, and part of an old iron stove lay mournfully under the house. I peeped through the window half rever reverently and found things that were more familiar. The blackboard had grown by about two feet, and the seats were still without backs. The county owns the lot now, I hear, and every year there is a session of school. As I sat by the spring and looked on the old and the new, I felt glad, very glad, and yet... After two long drinks, I started on. There was the great double log house on the corner. I remembered the broken, blighted family that used to live there. The strong, hard face of the mother with this wilderness of hair rose before me. She had driven her husband away, and while I taught school, a strange man lived there, big and jovial, and people talked. I felt sure that Ben and Tildy would come to naught from such a home. But this is an odd world, for Ben is a busy farmer in Smith County, quote, doing well, too, end quote, they say, and he had care for little Tildy until last spring when a lover married her. A hard life the lad had led, toiling for meat 
and laughed at because he was homely and crooked. There was Sam Carlin, an impundent old skinflint who had definite notions about, quote, niggers, end quote, and hired Ben a summer and would not pay him. Then the hungry boy gathered his sacks together and in broad daylight went into Carlin's corn. And when the hard-fisted farmer set upon him, the angry boy flew at him like a beast. Doc Burke saved a murder and a lynching that day. The story reminded me again of the Burks, and an impatience seized me to know who won in the battle, Doc or the 75 acres. For it is a hard thing to make a farm out of nothing, even in 15 years. So I hurried on, thinking of the Burks. They used to have a certain magnificent barbarism about them that I liked. They were never vulgar, never immoral, but rather rough and primitive, with an unconventionally unconventionality that spent itself in loud guffaws, slaps on the back, and naps in the corner. I hurried by the cottage of the misborn Neil boys. It was empty, and they were grown into fat, lazy farmhands. I saw the home of the Hickmans, but Albert, with his stooping shoulders, had passed from the world. Then I came to the Burks' gate and peered through. The enclosure looked rough and untrimmed, and yet there were the same fences around the old farm save to the left where lay 25 other acres. And lo, the cabin in the hollow had climbed the hill and swollen into a half-finished six-room cottage. The Burks held 100 acres, but they were still in debt. Indeed, the gaunt father who toiled night and day would scarcely be happy out of debt, being so used to it. Someday he must stop, for his massive frame is showing decline. The mother wore shoes, but the lion-like physique of other days was broken. The children had grown up. Rob, the image of his father, was loud and rough with laughter. Bertie, my school baby of six, had grown to a picture of maiden beauty, tall and tawny. Quote, Edgar is gone, end quote, said the mother, with head half bowed. Quote, going to work in Nashville. He and his father couldn't agree, end quote. Little Doc, the boy born since the time of my school, took me horseback down the creek next morning toward Farmer Dowell's. The road and the stream were battling for mastery, and the stream had the better of it. We splashed and waded, and the merry boy, perched behind me, chattered and laughed. He showed me where Simon Thompson had brought a bit of ground. He showed me where Simon Thompson had bought a bit of ground and a home, but his daughter Lana, a plump, brown, slow girl, was not there. She had married a man in a farm 20 miles away. We wound on down the stream till we came to a gate that I did not recognize, but the boy insisted that it was, quote, Uncle Birds, end quote. The farm was fat with the growing crop, and that little valley was a strange stillness as I rode up, for death and marriage had stolen youth and left age and childhood there. We sat and talked that night after the chores were done. Uncle Bird was grayer, and his eyes did not see me so well, but he was still jovial. We talked of the acres bought, 125, of the new guest chamber added, of Martha's marrying. Then we talked of death. Fanny and Fred were gone. A shadow hung over the other daughter, and when it lifted, she was to go to Nashville to school. At last we spoke of the neighbors, and as night fell, Uncle Bird told me how, on a night like that, Thene came wandering back to her home over yonder to escape the blows of her husband. And next morning, she died in the home that her little bow-legged brother, working and saving, had bought for their widowed mother. My journey was done, and behind me lay hill and dale, and life and death. How shall man measure progress there where the dark-faced Josie lies? 
How many heartfuls of sorrow shall balance a bushel of wheat? How hard a thing is life to the lowly, and yet how human and real. In all this life and love and strife and failure, is it the twilight of nightfall or the flush of some fainting dawning day? Thus sadly musing, I rode to Nashville in the Jim Crow car. And that brings us to the end of chapter four. And that brings us to just about 30 minutes. Some of these other chapters have been longer. I'm going to do my best to do a chapter or episode until we get to a point where a chapter is just too big to do in an episode. And this question that he has here. How shall men measure progress where the dark faced Josie lies? And when you hear about all of these experience that these black people went through in this in this in this town, when you know that it's after slavery has been ended, it's after emancipation has been ended, it's after what W.E.B. Du Bois referred to as the coming uh, of the Lord, the coming of the glory of the Lord. When you see that this is what these black people were relegated to after slavery, that this is the conditions that they uh, had to live in, that these was the, the lack of opportunities they had, the the lack of equality, the lack of equity, the lack of of humaneness that they had to exist with. It makes you, again, ask the question, uh, what is progress and what does progress mean and what does progress look like? And, and then when you read this experience, and then you think about the book High Risers that we read. When you think about books like Race Matters that we've read, Have Black Lives Ever Mattered that we read. And you see how many of these, when you see how the, the poverty has been perpetuated in the black community uh, regularly. When you see how uh, unequitable and unequal education has been perpetuated regularly when you see how substandard living conditions have been perpetuated regularly when you see how uh unlivable wages have been perpetuated regularly again it makes you ask what does progress mean what is the meaning of progress and i think that that is the word progress is what we need to be focusing on and not necessarily the word change yeah, things have changed since slavery. Things have changed since the Reconstruction. Things have changed since Jim Crow and uh, legalized segregation. But how much progress has been made through that change? So share this episode on whatever platform you are listening to it on and be on the lookout for our next episode of Rafa Reading Daily, which will be out tomorrow as we continue reading The Souls of Black Folk by W.E.B. Du Bois. And remember, we put these episodes out on a daily basis to provide people the opportunity to begin or further their journey in the struggle to end police terrorism, mass incarceration, and racial injustice. I'll let you tomorrow.